0: Nick? Sheeny, hi, nice to see you. I was just going for a walk, and I thought I'd drop by. I remembered that you lived here. I'm sorry that I got so upset about Trent. Uh, It was very immature
1: of me. I'm not normally like that. He sounds like a great guy. I'd love to hear some more of his neat poetry. Say, do you want to go to the beach or or get
0: breakfast? Actually, I'm going on a hike. I'd ask you to come along, but you haven't got any hiking boots, provisions, survey maps, or a compass.
1: fine. I do all my hiking free form. Like John Muir, I enter the wilderness with nothing more than my journal and a childlike sense of wonder.
0: What the hell is going on? This is a private journal.
1: Trent is not an affected twit. Shiny, how would you like it if I read your journal?
0: Go ahead. It's written in a shorthand of my own devising necessity for a girl with Christian parents. What does this say? What do you like to know? That last passage would be of particular interest to you. <laughs> I doubt that. I have very little interest in reading about Trent Preston's beautiful shoulders. I haven't made love with Trent, if that's what you want to know. I've only made love once and it was less than erotic. Then I hear it gets better with practice. You're a virgin, I can tell. kiss me you weenie
1: Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host Mike. And once again, we go forward an entire year for yet another Michael Sarah starring vehicle, Youth in Revolt. I absolutely adored this film when it came out. I just thought it was so cool. It might have been because I was all about Michael Sarah, and I think a lot of people were. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the Michael Sarah. Uh, You know, fan train, uh, uh, took a nosedive or or ran into a wall when Scott Pilgrim made no money at the box office. What were your
0: initial thoughts of Youth in Revolt? I remember being... I was excited about it, and the girl I was seeing at the time was very excited about it. Now She was not... Probably because she was forced to consume so many theatrical experiences with me. I was not someone that on the regular expressed a lot of enthusiasm for a particular film. Like had no problem. Like, well, I hope not. Anyway, she had a miserable dating experience with me, had no problem going (laughs) to the movies, but I didn't often hear her say, Oh, I'm excited about that. Or when is that coming out? Which I think I don't know about you, but I've sort of found in my relationships where it's like, clearly I'm the one more into movies. So it's like, I'm curating, What's coming out and making them aware of like oh yeah, this is this is gonna be good just in my sort of natural enthusiasm for the form so that's my biggest memory of it was oh wow okay she's she's like circled the calendar for <laughs> youth and revolt which I took no issue with but yeah, you mentioned this being at the tail end I guess of the Michael Sarah push which. I think started. uh Well, we we started in 2007. This month with Juno, but earlier that year, that summer, he had a big hit with Superbad. So you have Superbad and yes, Juno, where right. he's the the leading man in in each. And you know Nick and Nora. Now, Youth and Revolt, and the really big push, as you mentioned, with Scott Pilgrim, that's where they, they backed up the, the the truck full of money. <laughs> like. And I, I guess that's where they learned the lesson that uh, maybe going smaller with the Michael Cera comedy stylings is where to go. But before Scott Pilgrim, this had to be the most broad theatrical product for Michael Cera, where you get two for the price of one, you get the the alternate bad boy uh, version of the Michael Sarah persona, which I think they really did hang their hat on in the, the marketing. But I don't remember my initial impressions of it other than, and this is really bad podcast material. I liked it. Like that was entertaining. And I bought a physical copy of it at some going out of business blockbuster or Hollywood video. Cause I have one of those like crappy cases for it. Um, oh no. So, yeah, I and I'm such a nerd that uh my wife and I first started dating. Uh she's definitely cleaner than me. And I remember her just kind of absentmindedly being like, Oh, these cases don't all line up and that was like I think she was taken aback by this being the first time I ever expressed interest in like the cleanliness of like my own home I was like, I know, it's bothered me forever and like I immediately got on Amazon to buy blank Blu ray cases and then taking the covers out and putting them in. I don't think I ever rewatched *Youth and Revolt*, though. Like, even owning that used copy, I—I I don't think I've ever done a podcast on it. You and I kicked this one around for ages. It felt like, like you kept yeah. saying, "We've got to do a podcast on *Youth and Revolt*." And so, you know, we get to the the end of this uh, Michael Sarah trilogy, which we'll we'll wrap up in earnest with our, you know, appropriate but kind of forced theme. But I didn't remember a lot of the details of this. I just remember the broad strokes. Like, oh, you have the, the good guy and the bad guy, the devil and the angel of Michael Sarah. What I forgot though is that even the nebbish good guy version is such a horrible ass here. Yes! He, yes! he is just as much of a villain as, uh, Francois Dillinger, his alter ego that does all the bad things that he can never unleash. Uh, this is a version of, Fight Club. If Ed Norton, like <laughs> if you knew the whole time that he was just as combative and aggressive and into anarchy as as Tyler Durden uh, here, and that's that's I guess the biggest compliment I can give to the film is that if you're in to the Michael Serenis here, boy, this is a different turn all around because he's just playing a jackass, like an unrelenting jackass. For almost the entire runtime, even his quest object of this other, of this woman, the things he will do and the people he will destroy in his path <laughs> to getting to, uh, God, a horrible character name, Sheenie Saunders, uh, is impressive. It is really, really impressive. And I don't, let me, before you get into your love, deep love, I assume for this film. I can't imagine this one had a very positive response, like financially. Like I, I don't think this was some sort of big hit at the time, or even a modest hit. Was it? No, not
1: at all. It. I mean, if if it spent zero on marketing, it maybe made a million bucks. Uh, so I, I'm almost certain that it took a loss. Like a bad transplant, you almost reject your body rejects Michael Sarah being a complete asshole because he's just been. Kind of the awkward good guy for years prior to this. Ever since Arrested Development, and then the the breakout hit on Superbad, even Superbad, where he's not a pure a uh, pure character. He's still defending uh, his love interest in that movie. Like you think lo- a fuckable is something nice to say to somebody, and so it's like you always see him as kind of a good guy. And I think when you watch this film, you're like, this isn't. He's still a good guy, even though he's doing all these terrible things, and so there's an initial denial you go through that denial and then I think mm-hmm. Francois Dillinger allows you to finally realize, okay, so even though on screen you're seeing a different Michael Sarah doing these things, it's the same character. It is very much still uh Nick is he Nick in this?
0: <laughs> well, he's Nick, but more importantly his last name. Last name of Twisp is more (laughs) more important.
1: That's right. And so I immediately, you know what really made me actually immediately love him? And this, gosh, this is good writing. This is where I feel like the director and the screenwriter and the actor, they're all kind of like, we're going to make this just for him. He's at the used video store or or excuse me, I think maybe just a rental, like a, a video rental store. And he picks out Lestrada <laughs> And immediately I'm like, I love Fellini. This guy. Know. And then, you know, of course, uh, the jock character. Uh, like, does that movie come with a tampon, her, her. And I'm like, oh, I know people like that. I immediately <laughs> bonded with good old Nick Twisp right off the bat. So every horrible thing that he does later on in the film, like, yeah,
0: it's fine. He needs to get Sheenie. I okay. am
1: on this journey with him.
0: I was trying to figure out a way I mean, you, you opened that door for me but as I'm rewatching this <laughs> I'm, it's not you but I'm like man <laughs> this might be the closest I ever see to the fantasy badass version of web on screen is <laughs> <it's> Nick Twist. <laughs> like if cause privately like you know not in your personal life but like when we're talking about pop culture and your responses to you know these obnoxious voices on the internet, or both of you and I privately, we're like, man, what an idiot, which is probably the, the, I don't know if it's healthy, but maybe the healthiest way to engage with people on Twitter is just privately just sort of shake your head like you're the old man on the porch, like the Clint Eastwood gif of just being greatly disgusted. But I'm watching this, and in particular that scene, and I'm thinking, this is, this is web unleashed. This is if web broke bad. This is breaking bad, <laughs> except it's it's the life of web <laughs> You know, film fan and his his quest for this. I, I don't even think you would call it a romantic ideal. Like Shini is such an interesting character here, where it's just. I'm not trying to make uh you know poor Nick Twist sound like a you know a, a manslut here, I guess, but of any port in the storm, but it is so immediate, and. I guess unearned his like uh, obsession with her, like even their meat is at this it's, it's this escape from these very Coen brothers, like um, these three sailors who are coming, <laughs> coming to do harm <laughs> to this uh, um, a, a forced adopted father figure for, for Nick twist. But he meets Sheenie at this trailer park and it has this weird shot where he just like bumps into her and then it's like him in the shower, like this slow mo moment, like where it's like this, yeah. this is going to be his life now. Um, I have to think that people that came for a version of Superbad not only found the character, but I think they were probably found, found the film very off putting just in tone, just in general. I mean, even the, uh, the claymation credit sequence is like this, it has this like horrifying look to it. Like you're going into some weird circle of hell with, with Nick and his his family uh, and this uh, uh, Gene Smart, who I know at least one person is a huge fan of. And that one person may very well be on this podcast at the moment. <laughs> uh, it's just totally very striking. And I'm watching it with like great admiration, but also thinking like, man – Someone had to know. Yeah, this is not going to uh this is not going to be super bad too. This just isn't going to happen.
1: No, not at all. And you're right. Tonally, it is a little all over the place. And and I'm glad you went to the animation cuz there are at least two or three different animated sequences mm-hmm. in this film. And even the coda, like the little epilogue is animated, which which I feel like gives a false sense of like, oh, everything's okay. I'm like, boy, everything would not be okay in real life. <laughs> Um uh, one of the things that I think keeps the film together because I think the film starts off you know pretty stable and the plot and the tone become so striking and at ends with the beginning the first act of the film it starts to go off the rails just a little bit it becomes a little more erratic the one thing I will say that keeps it all together is the dialogue, the hyper real dialogue, like nobody talks this way, it's kind of like how in Ocean's Eleven, like nobody's that fucking cool, man, like everybody has the right thing to say at the right time, when Clooney needs that speech, he'll bust it out, and then Brad Pitt will question about, the, did you have that speech, pl-? you know, nobody talks like this, very much kind of like Cosmopolis is like this as well. And that dialogue in, in Youth and Revolt is consistent throughout, and it's just so damn clever, and, and I found that incredibly uh, alluring to me.
0: I love that you are comparing a line such as, I want to tickle your belly button from the inside to George Clooney <laughs> in Ocean's Eleven, or Cronenberg material.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I said, yeah. Very, very web. well no, Well, not that particular line. But the style in which it is delivered So Nick Twisp, after insulting Trent, kind of, like, you know, invites Cheney to go on, like, another, maybe, a beach day with him. And, and (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah, he says something along the lines of... Like, I'm sorry what I said about Trent's poetry. I think it's really neat, and I'd love to hear more of it. The style in which a lot of this dialogue is, (laughs) I think, conceived and delivered is unlike so many films. Even when, when his, uh, buddy Vijay, uh, the, the, oh, an Indi- Indian representation, thank God. And thank goodness, uh, like, a, a sexualized Indian representation. So often in film, there, I, there is actually kind of like a little, uh, um, criticism about the desexualization of like the Asian male protagonists in film. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they're relegated to uh, uh, jokes and and just kind of supporting characters that are used uh, as as you know insult fodder. And I was really pleased that you know one of the few people who gets laid in this film is Indian. So I was very happy with him. And I actually like the laid, actor he
0: gets laid with the uh, the the girl with the dragon tattoo. He... that's right that is right he does and, very and well for pres- himself
1: and presumably he gets a pretty good grade out of it too i i have to imagine um i like i like the actor also uh quite a bit uh his name is adir he he was <laughs> going back to my love of sitcoms uh, he becomes a major character in the show rules of engagement <laughs> with a, a wonderful Patrick Warburton, and so I've enjoyed his uh, exploits for quite a while. So I was thrilled to see him here as well. Uh, so
0: compliment him, but Cat Dennings not impressed with her I, no I, <laughs> headlining <like it. laughs> role in Two Broke Girls. <laughs> that is
1: true. I, I was very pleased with with a lot of the way the film kind of conducts itself, and it doesn't quite have, I think the. I guess the the appeal of the idiosyncratic and the charm of Juno, but it has its own thing. It has its own weird appeal. And, it, I mean, it, I think it's striking that this film didn't even, uh, most likely, make its money back. What? How did you react to the way the characters speak, the way the characters behave? And you're right, like, it was a bit off-putting to see, like, to see even uh, uh, the the, the anti-Francois, uh, the regular Nick Twist being just a jerk. But how did the way that these characters come
0: across and present themselves, did that have any effect on you? I, I think the film does us a service by having an almost immediate disconnect from these being real people. Like, even Sheenie herself, if she was... <sighs> not more three-dimensional, but if she was, you know, just a a nicer, more grounded character, I think you would see this as some very strange, you know, young adult erotic thriller where Michael Cera is playing a stalker character of her. But she herself is equally as cold and uh, persistent in her own pursuits. Like, you know, she... She has her own agenda of things. And I think ultimately, you know, they they do end up getting together. You believe it because you think that maybe she would also be attracted to someone who will stop at nothing to get what they want, even if it has done her harm in some way. It has gotten her expelled from this school that she was really happy to get into. And she got to leave this this area with her overbearing, uh, conservative parents. And, you know, it is Nick Twisp that brings her back. (laughs) <laughs> to that world just so he can have her. I think, you know, if she was you know, the girl next door type, you know, I don't I don't know if it works. I think you're allowed to revel in the <laughs> vindictive play of Nick Twisp and Francois Dillinger. Uh because you don't really think that it's doing this young lady any harm or it's not doing something that she wouldn't do herself if someone was in her way, she would she would step all over them to get to the next next step so i i mean i I liked it it's just it would be one that <laughs> if I was going to recommend uh a Michael Sarah joint, there would be that i slight I guess expectation I would have that someone would immediately reject this. Like, I think you're going to know if you're going to be into this within the first 10 minutes or not. And if you're not into it, I don't think the film, this is not going to be like my mother's experience with Juno, where I think it's somehow going to change your mind at the half. hour. No, it's not going to win you over. Yeah. You're in it or you're not. One thing that I do
1: like about it, and I like a lot about it. Like I actually like it quite a bit. Um, not, I, I probably, I think I like it less than I did initially, but I still like quite a bit of it. The sheeny character you're right she she feels like she could be as cutthroat as Nick Twisp and Francois are, and that's kind of what makes them a good couple to me. I don't know why you're it's they're not the adorable uh <laughs> uh Bleeker and Juno, but they have this weird connection that you either have to accept or not you're right like right off the bat i and i think she even points out a possible erection in their first meeting as uh or like a she's like oh you're you know your robe is open so i and that might be just me uh, projecting because there is so much talk of erection in the book like constant so when i watched uh, the movie this time around, it clearly stuck out to me. And then all of a sudden, you're right, the, the hard cut into the high frame rate, slow motion. So you just kind of accept it. And I did. And as the film goes on, uh, Nick Twist sees himself as somebody who's like better than his situation. And so does Sheeny. And I think that kind of brings them together. Sheenie also is portrayed by uh, Portia Doubleday. Is that her name? Uh, she is wonderful. Like, I, I absolutely adore this actress, and this is really the only thing that I've seen her in. I don't know if she was in anything else. I think I, I, I saw that she might be in, uh, not iRobot, is, is there a, the, the Rami Malek TV show, something robot?
0: Mr. Robot, yes. Yeah, uh, Mr. was Because I'm looking at her IMDb, and that's, that's how she spent uh, half of the last decade. Was Mr. Robot? Not a lot of of uh, film roles. Like after uh, Mr. Robot ended, the only thing she was in was that uh, terrible Bloomhouse Fantasy Island thing that came out earlier this year. But oh, gosh, um, that might be that might be enough uh, for me to <laughs> that
1: might be enough for me to watch Fantasy Island actually, to check it to out. Be honest with you, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the
0: Carrie remake. I guess with Julianne Moore, she was in her. I uh, don't remember, um, or was she just a voice? I, d- I don't know. I bet she was
1: that—that that the body uh, um, placeholder for. Yes, College it does of label Johansson. her as
0: a surrogate surrogate date. So yes, yes, that's right. Um, that's
1: wonderful. Oh, great! I'm gonna have to go rewatch her now. Now, now I just need my double day content. Um, she was wonderful. I think the way she portrays the character, you really do need to find the right people to deliver this dialogue. And I think the two of them did a really good job. The same way that like you you listen to Jason Lee deliver dialogue that's written by Kevin Smith. There we go.
0: We had to get our Kevin Smith <laughs> reference
1: in for the month. <laughs> When you compare Jason Lee delivering Kevin Smith's dialogue versus Jeremy London, like in Mallrats, there is a very, (laughs) right? I'm glad you have that reaction, hopefully for the right reasons. Because Mm -hmm. Brody is the perfect Kevin Smith character delivering that dialogue absolutely flawlessly. And Jeremy London is
0: just struggling with it.
1: Can't quite get it out.
0: I was always really impressed with uh, Alan Rickman in Dogma, which I never. Yeah, I would never think that Alan Rickman and Kevin Smith natural pairing. Now he's a he's a you know a true professional uh, and an all time great, but that's not Jason Lee has the look probably because he broke out with Kevin Smith material. Alan Rickman, established, uh, serious actor. Dogma he's fantastic in that some for some actors it works, and i am not even holding it against an actor if they can't get out that mouthful of <laughs> dialogue that's usually about uh you know <laughs> semen re- related material these monologues <laughs> about just <laughs> semen everywhere but um i i I think that's you're you're dead on like there's you could have some missteps with this material as well. I just want to shout out. The casting here of uh, Mr. Pink as George Twisp, which if ever there was an actor, a character actor meant to play someone as the beleaguered George Twisp, who has just his own semen, to keep it on point there, has created this like demon spawn of a child that just (laughs) just comes to (laughs) live with him and just makes his life hell. (laughs) Steve Buscemi uh, plays that well. Fred Willard. As the uh, kindly neighbor, if you want to go back to your sitcom territory, that's just a little off kilter. You know, that's just the whole film, right? The whole film is just a little off kilter. Like every character you encounter is like the strange one from another movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think if you're looking for something that's not quite right, Youth and
0: Revolt is for you. Doesn't matter, it can't happen. Why not? It's bound to come up. It's impossible. Lois could never have Superman's baby. Do you think her fallopian
1: tubes can handle his sperm? I guarantee he blows a load like a shotgun right through her back. What about her womb? Do you think it's strong enough to carry his child? Sure, why not? He's an alien, for Christ's sake. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. If Lois gets a tan, the kid could kick right through her stomach. Only someone like Wonder Woman has a strong enough uterus to carry his kid. The only way he could bang regular chicks is with a kryptonite condom. That would kill him. How did I go from the verge of hop Floridian sex with brandy to man of still coital debates with you in the food court? Cookie stand is not part of the food court. What well, of course it is. The food court is downstairs. The cookie stand is upstairs. It's not like we're talking quantum physics here. The cookie stand counts as an eatery. The eateries are part of the food court. Bullshit. Eateries that operate within the designated square downstairs qualify as food court. Anything outside of said designated
0: square is considered an autonomous unit for mid-mall snacking.